I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 9, Is This What Shakespeare Actually Wrote? Shakespeare's Texts. In this podcast, I'm going to introduce the topics with titles, just to help you stay oriented. The first topic is Manuscripts. We have not a single play in Shakespeare's own handwriting. The only examples of his handwriting that we do have are a few signatures on business documents and his will, and a few pages thought to be in Shakespeare's hand in the manuscript of a play called Sir Thomas More, a manuscript much revised that exhibits the handwriting of as many as six people. The plays and poems of Shakespeare that have come down to us exist in early printed versions based upon either Shakespeare's own manuscripts, now lost, or upon copies of them handwritten by someone else, called scribal copies. Over the last several centuries, and particularly in the 20th century, a tremendous amount of scholarly work has been done to establish the nature of the manuscript copies used for the early printed editions and the degree of fidelity the typesetters demonstrated in transferring the manuscript words into print. Scholars have studied the technical operation and finances of Renaissance printing houses, legal documents of the period, even the particular characteristics of individual typesetters. They have pored over Elizabethan and Jacobean handwriting, paper, parchment, and ink. They have analyzed the stationer's register, in which the government required that every book printed in the period be listed. In recent years, they have used the computer to count particular words, unique spellings, allusions, images, and concepts. They have examined every nook and cranny of the age in search of potential evidence, bibliographical, legal, chemical, psychological, social, and intellectual, in order to establish with as much certainty as possible, exactly what Shakespeare actually wrote. Every modern edition is the fruit of this vast scholarly effort, along with some unfortunately necessary guesswork, called conjecture. The conjecture is necessary because here and there in Shakespeare we come across a missing word, or a phrase, or a line, or a phrase so obscure that, despite all our scholarship, we simply don't know what Shakespeare meant. Did Shakespeare slip? Did the copyist? Did the typesetter? Has the language so changed that we've lost the meaning of a word or phrase? Some combination of any of these? In some cases, we just don't know. Such a passage is called a crux, plural, cruxes or cruces, from the Latin for cross or torture. For example, in the beginning of the great soliloquy in Act 1, Scene 2 of Hamlet, does our hero say, Oh, that this too, too sallied flesh would melt? Or, Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt? Or, as some editors suggest, Oh, that this too, too sullied flesh would melt? Probably we can never know the answer. Nonetheless, as tortured as some of us may be by a Shakespearean crux, we must be profoundly grateful that the vast majority of Shakespeare's words have been faithfully preserved in print. Early Printed Editions 
The early printed editions of Shakespeare's works were of two kinds, called quarto and folio, based upon their size. The quarto was made from a standard sheet of printer's paper with four blocks of print on each side, hence quarto. It was folded twice before being bound into a book, making four leaves and eight pages. The folio was printed with two blocks of print per side and was folded once, making two leaves and four pages. About twenty of Shakespeare's plays were printed in quarto editions during his lifetime, and all the plays now ascribed to Shakespeare except Pericles and the Shakespearean sections of Two Noble Kinsmen and Sir Thomas More were published in the first folio of 1623, about seven years after Shakespeare's death. The Good Quartos When a play was successful in performance on Shakespeare's stage, his company might find it financially beneficial to have it printed in a single edition. The company would provide a printer with the theater prompt book copy, Shakespeare's manuscript called Foul Papers, or a rewritten copy called a fair copy, from which the printer would set the type for the printed version. These quartos are called good because the versions of the plays used by the printer are authoritative. That is, they're as close as we can get to what Shakespeare actually wrote. The Bad Quartos Because it was profitable to publish plays, especially if they were by Shakespeare, sometimes his plays were pirated, just as today someone might pirate a musical album or video and sell it. In the case of Shakespeare's plays, the pirates were often actors, not necessarily leading actors, who got together to reconstruct the play from memory, write it down, and then have it printed and sold under Shakespeare's name. Generally, actors have good memories for their own lines, though few are word-perfect. But when actors are trying to remember lines not their own, or lines from scenes in which they were backstage changing costumes, their memories get a little fuzzy. As a result, some of the speeches in these pirated editions are very close to the originals, as we have them in the good quartos, or first folio, but many, often most, of the speeches are very far from the originals, sometimes hilariously far. Here's an example from Hamlet, his To Be or Not to Be soliloquy, Act 3, Scene 1, lines 55 to 87. I'm going to read first the speech from the good quarto of 1604, and then the same speech from the bad quarto of 1603. Here's the speech in the good quarto. To be or not to be, that is the question whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die? To sleep, no more. And by a sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep. To sleep? perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect 
that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the presser's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose boor no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? Thus conscience does make cowards, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment, with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Now, here's the same speech in the bad quarto. To be or not to be, aye, there's the point. To die, to sleep, is that all? Aye, all. No, to sleep, to dream, aye, Mary, there it goes. For in that dream of death, when we awake, and born before an everlasting judge, from whence no passenger ever returned, the undiscovered country, at whose sight the happy smile and the accursed damned. But for this, the joyful hope of this, who'd bear the scorns and flattery of the world, scorned by the right rich, the rich cursed of the poor, the widow being oppressed, the orphan wronged, the taste of hunger or a tyrant's reign, and thousand more calamities besides, to grunt and sweat under this weary life, when that he may his full quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would this endure but for a hope of something after death, which puzzles the brain and doth confound the sense, than fly to others that we know not of? Aye, that, oh, this conscience makes cowards of us all. The poet and scholar J. V. Cunningham had the wonderful theory that as the actor, who obviously had not played Hamlet, was trying to remember the lines of this speech, he knew he had got them wrong. According to this theory, when he said, No, to sleep, to dream, I marry, there it goes, he meant, No, that's not how it goes, it goes to sleep, to dream, now I've got it. Mary was a mild oath derived from by the Virgin Mary. According to this theory, I, Mary, there it goes, was the actor saying, Ah, yes, that's how the words go. And the person copying down what the actor was saying kept writing, not distinguishing between the character's lines, to sleep, to dream, and the actor's words to himself about trying to remember them. I, Mary, there it goes. In any case, these quarto editions are called bad because they are not based on Shakespeare's written word, but on often faulty reconstructions from memory. They remain useful for comparison when textual problems in the good quartos and folio arise. For example, the bad quarto of Hamlet confirms that the folio is correct in adding the phrase of us all to line 82 in the speech I just quoted, where the good quarto has Thus conscience does make cowards. 
and the bad quartos give at least some sense of what the actor thought the words should be and the speech should mean. But we are very fortunate that, except perhaps in the case of Pericles, which I will discuss in the podcast of chapter 13 on Shakespeare's collaborations, we do not have to depend on them for most of what Shakespeare wrote. The First Folio In 1623, about seven years after Shakespeare's death, his friends, John Hemming and Henry Condell, who were members of Shakespeare's acting company, got together the best texts of Shakespeare's plays that they could find. They gathered 36 plays and had them printed in a folio edition by William Jaggard. It was called Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies, published according to the true original copies. This was the first collected edition of the works of William Shakespeare. It is called the First Folio, F1 for short. The First Folio edition contains the only early texts we have of 18 of Shakespeare's plays, and the best texts we have of seven others. For this reason, every Shakespeare lover in the world owes a huge debt of gratitude to Hemming and Condell and the printer William Jaggard. Later editions. The first folio was followed by three folio editions, F2 in 1632, F3 in 1663, and F4 in 1685, each printed from the previous one. Each made some corrections and compounded some errors. During the 18th century, several brilliant editors produced valuable collected editions with their editorial emendations and notes, including Nicholas Rowe, 1709, the poet Alexander Pope, 1725, Louis Tybalt, spelled T-H-E-O-B-A-L-D, 1733, Sir Thomas Hanmer, 1744, William Warburton, 1747, the great Dr. Samuel Johnson, 1765, Edward Capel, 1768, George Stevens, 1773, and Edmund Malone, 1790. In the 19th century, there were advances in scholarship, focus on aesthetic criticism fostered by the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and the essayist William Hazlitt, and several important editions including the new Variorum edition by H. H. Furness, which attempted to list all the variants in the early texts and all the previous editors' suggested emendations. Modern Editions All modern editions of Shakespeare are based primarily on the early good quarto and first folio editions. Where they find confusions or cruxes, editors will adopt some emendations of previous editors and reject others, some making emendations of their own. The goal is to produce a text as close as possible to what Shakespeare actually wrote. Most editors will choose either a good quarto or the first folio version as the version to start from, called the copy text, and then will combine, or as they call it, conflate the best readings from quarto, folio, and inspired emendation into a single version. Best 
does not mean the one the editor likes the most, but the one likeliest to be what Shakespeare intended. Some editors prefer to cut away all later emendations and stick as close to the original printed editions as possible. Where both good quarto and first folio versions exist, some will print both side by side for ease of comparison. It is now possible for any reader to examine the original editions in excellent, photographically reproduced, that is, facsimile, editions of the quartos and the first folio. See the notes section on the webpage for the references. The facsimile editions will show that the crux from Hamlet given above appears as sallied, meaning under attack, in both the bad quarto, Q1, and the good quarto, Q2, of the play, and as solid in the first folio. If you were editing the play, you would have to decide which you thought Shakespeare actually wrote, sallied, or solid, or perhaps sullied, meaning dirtied, as some editors have thought. How would you defend your choice? In the theater, all three spellings would have sounded nearly the same. Did Shakespeare at once intend two of these meanings, or all three? Of course, ultimately, it is no one word but the entire play in which the playwright's meaning lies, as I tried to show in the three podcast sessions of Chapter 6 on the unity in the plays. But it is worth remembering the hard work the editors of Shakespeare have done to solve textual problems in order that we may appreciate each play as a whole. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. <laughs>